The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. You've been around. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, thank you, Maureen. I thought <coughs> it would be nice tonight to end the year, start the new year, <coughs> discussing, um, reviewing uh, sila, or morality, ethics. Ethics is very important in Buddhist practice. It's really, in many ways, uh, foundation. <coughs> we often use the term ahimsa, which is most often associated with Gandhi. Gandhi's teachings were ahimsa, non-harming or non-violence. And in Buddhist practice, the basis of our ethical practice, or sila, <clears throat> sila is the Pali word, um, for virtue or ethics or morality is that of harmlessness, kind of like the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take, above all, do no harm. And so we look at behavior, and behavior can be body, speech, and thought or mind through the prism of will it create harm, is it creating harm, or, or suffering, or does it lead away from suffering and create happiness? So you may know in this practice there's no concept of sin. And we don't talk about things as right or wrong, good or bad, Instead, we use terms like skillful and unskillful, or healthy and unhealthy. Mostly, that which leads to happiness or that which leads to suffering. And that's how we evaluate, determine what is skillful behavior and what is not. It's very different from most other traditions where ethics are much more black and white. <clears throat> there are commandments, and it's like one size fits all. Um, you do not, period. There's no, no debate, no wrestling, no grappling with issues. It's very clear, which sometimes makes it easier. When I was younger, I appreciated the, the black and whiteness. But in Buddhist practice, it's not so black and white. We are asked to grapple with what is skillful or helpful behavior and what is not. We're asked to grapple, to wrestle with the precepts. Um, 
using our best judgment, our best our compassion, our uh, sense of non-harming, to evaluate each situation on its own. That actually puts a lot of responsibility on us. You can't just <laughs> take something that somebody said and do it or don't do it. It's important that we look at the whole picture. You know, in practice, we talk about causes and conditions. There are innumerable causes and conditions for every action. And so many, in fact, that you know, we probably can't know them all. But we can look at all of the factors, all of the conditions that go into a situation. And then with our understanding of ahimsa, of the precepts, of the Eightfold Path, uh, we make a decision about what is the most skillful, the most helpful course of action in that situation. So it means that we each have to put some thought into what we want to do and what not do. Uh, and it's not uh, just a prescription, uh, commandments. Certainly, there are considerations. Some people might think that if it's not black and white, if there's so many considerations, then that makes it kind of wishy-washy or, you know, not so important. And I find that it's quite the opposite that when we have to consider each situation and each aspect, um, <clears throat> and there is not a formula, one formula, that actually, I think, makes the precept, say, more significant. There, there, you can't just do it by rote or... Um, what somebody says. There actually is, has to be more involvement by each one of us. So I find that it actually expands the precepts. It, um, <clears throat> it makes them more living, you know. We're more involved instead of just a set of rules. So typically we talk about the precepts as uh, the basis of ethical behavior. Um, it's, they're not the only thing. As I mentioned, there is the Eightfold Path. Certainly there is compassion and loving kindness. All the qualities that we are developing through our practice that are part of any um, ethical consideration, any ethical decision. But we'll start with the precepts. And as you may know, the precepts, there are five in this 
tradition. They're very similar to the Ten Commandments in the Judeo-Christian tradition, except, as I said, that they're not black and white. They're not commandments. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, they're commandments, not guidelines. And I thought a Buddhist bumper sticker would be, they are guidelines, not commandments. (laughs) So it's a, a different approach, a different way of looking at them. Um, the first is that of not taking life. Or they're typically presented in the prohibitive, um, not doing something, which calls upon us to show restraint, to restrain our behavior and, and not slide into um, <clears throat> breaking the precepts. But I think it's also very, very helpful. Um, and whenever I am teaching the precepts or, or we're chanting them, I have us do them in the positive as well because I find that really opens them up and gives them more meaning. So the prohibitive is not taking life. The positive is honoring, respecting, cultivating life. And you can see just by those words that it really opens it up. So when we talk about honoring and respecting, um, protecting life, that adds much more to the question or the consideration that we might be having. So when we say not taking life, probably all of us think, oh, of course, I don't take life. I wouldn't wouldn't take a life. However, (laughs) if we look carefully, we can't help but take life. We are breathing in microorganisms all the time. We probably all have taken an antibiotic at one time or another. And we may have taken the life of many, many organisms. What about the insects that we either consciously or inadvertently step on as we're walking? In a way, uh, it can't be helped. In another way, we can develop much more mindfulness, much more consciousness, and avoid stepping on many insects, um, spiders, etc. When I was younger, I was afraid of spiders, and so I was happy to step on them. (laughs) That was one less for me to worry about. And since I have come to practice and and lost that fear, I'm much more likely now to put them on a piece of paper and take them outside and teach children and others to do the same thing. 
So there's always questions about abortion. Is it taking life to have an abortion? And we might all agree that it is at least a potential life. And is that okay or not? Well, this is where we have to look at the entire situation. There are some teachers like Tom Jeff that would say it's not okay. Um, Tom Jeff is a, a very um, erudite <laughs> monk in the San Diego area. And he says, the Buddha said, no killing, period. But most of us look at things in the broader context. And so in terms of an abortion, you know, we might consider how did the pregnancy come about? Rape or whatever. Is, is the person, the woman, in a position to bear a child? To raise a child? Is there support? Is there financial support? Is this child going to have a healthy, meaningful life. And so given several different situations, one might say yes and one might say no. And if we think that, you know, there's no right or wrong, it's what each person determines in that situation, given all the factors and given the understanding of not taking life or honoring life, what is the best decision? There are things like eating meat. Um, <clears throat> it's said that the Buddha was basically vegetarian, but if he went to a home or was offered, was served meat, he would eat it because he felt it was more important to be a gracious guest than to be absolute. I've been vegetarian for about 30 years, and my daughter likes to say, my mom is a devout vegetarian, except for Swedish meatballs. <laughs> and that's because we have Swedish meatballs on Christmas, so I had Swedish meatballs yesterday. Can we, do we think about the animals that are killed for us to eat? Do we even know how they are treated, how they are raised? Um, for many of them, if not most, it's not a pretty picture. It's become big business, what we call factory farming, where often chickens are kept in cages their whole lives. Um, livestock, same thing. They may be in stalls and never get time outside. Um, do we want to eat meat that is raised that way? Another consideration is the death penalty. 
that's taking life. Is that, is that okay? Is it not? In general, Buddhist teachings suggest that, um, that it's not a good thing to do. <laughs> Number one, it takes away the person's chance of ever rehabilitating or ever experiencing remorse and making a different decision. It's, it's often not compassionate. And as we all know from the news, there are so many people, um, particularly people of color, that are executed, that are later found to have been not guilty, not associated with the crime. So these are important considerations. The death penalty is pretty finite. <laughs> if we do that, that's it. You know, there's not a chance for um, reconsideration. So I could go on. There are many other things to consider in terms of taking life and honoring life, protecting life, respecting life. But you get the sense, you get the feeling um, that it's a huge, complex topic. And each of us, has to consider it, has to use our most skillful reasoning, compassion, to see what the best decision is for us. Does anybody want to say anything or question? We'll go to the second one. And if at any time you know you have a question, please feel free to ask it. So the, the second precept is that of not taking what is not freely offered, i.e. not stealing. Um, but you hear when it's said that way, not taking what is not freely offered, that sounds a little different a little broader from just not stealing. And the positive is cultivating generosity. So what does it mean to not take something that isn't freely offered? What does freely offered mean? So when I was new to practice and I heard talks like this and um, considered my own behavior. I have always uh, picked up money on the ground, you know, pennies, dimes, quarters. And I have a jar I keep, keep it in, and then every year about this time I take it to community services. So I, as I was thinking about this, 
I realize mostly, of course, I pick up money that's, you know, in the gutter or on the sidewalk or... But occasionally, as I'm typically walking my dog, there can be money on somebody's grass or driveway. And I realized that that was, it's minor, but it was a form of stealing because it was actually on somebody's property. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I take it if it's on public sidewalk or it's, you know, in the street. I don't if it's actually on somebody's property. It's a minor thing, but it's that sense of, of morality, of um, not just grabbing anything that I see um, as if I were free to take it. For some people, it might mean not necessarily taking pencils and pens from work or something, something else from wherever you work that is readily available and everybody does it, so what the heck? Is that freely offered? Perhaps in some situations it is. Um, I have heard of situations where, you know, they just expect that people will take the pens and pencils and it's considered okay. If that's truly the case, it might be just fine. But again, it's just a little place for us to consider. Is that freely offered? Or am I helping myself to what is not really offered to me? Supposing we get too much change at the grocery store or any store. Do we keep it? Do we pocket it? Or do we offer it back to the clerk? suggesting that, you know, it's an overpayment. I actually, many years ago, someone was visiting from another country, and that happened. We were getting takeout, and, um, and the clerk gave me too much money back, and so I, you know, said, oh, I think you, I think you gave me too much. I gave it back, and the person that was with me was flabbergasted <laughs> and actually said, in my country, we would never do that. <laughs> but again, um, I prefer, for me, I prefer to be really clear about it. And if on the other hand, they charge me too much, then I speak up and point that out as well. So it's, it's an even uh, exchange, an even situation. And sometimes it may not be so clear whether something is freely given or not. But it's a consideration for us.
Are we just taking something without thinking about it, without being mindful and conscious about it? Sometimes we call ethics conscious conduct. I like that. I like that term. Because it means we're doing things consciously, not just rote or not just, you know, mindless without thinking, but consciously choosing how we will act and what we will do. So the third precept, the third and fourth are sometimes given in different order. I will say that the third one is um, wise speech. And the Buddha suggested that there was much more to wise speech than just not lying. So often we think of it as just not lying, telling the truth, which is a big piece of it, of course. And our intent would hopefully always be to tell the truth as best as we know it. But the Buddha suggested other considerations, such things as, is our speech kind and gentle, or is it harsh? Is it, will the, the person that we're saying it to, or persons, be able to hear it? And again, if not, I said, don't, don't say it. So I had somebody the other day ask me about a situation. And, and I was asking her those questions, you know, do you think, do you think this, it was something that somebody had sent her that she considered racist and, and bigoted or something like that. And um, so I was asking her, you know, do you think this person would hear you if you to, were to respond? She said, no. <laughs> so I said, let it go. Let it go. Because we're not about preaching <laughs> and telling somebody how wrong they are and how they shouldn't be doing that. And so if, if you're clear the person isn't going to hear it, don't do it. They can see by your behavior, by your actions, um, how you feel about things. And often that is much more uh, persuasive, much more valuable than trying to tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do. Listening can be a big piece of wise speech. If we can't listen well, how can we respond well? And, you know, we've all done it. We all respond too quickly out of our own experience or our own need or whatever, um, and then find out, whoops, that wasn't, that wasn't the best response. Um, it, if we respond too soon, sometimes it doesn't give the person a chance to really be heard or to say as much as they might want to say. So often, I find anyway, it's done with a good intention. The intention is to connect. 
but I did it too soon, too quickly. And the person actually had more to say. And if I had been quiet and maybe asked them a question or two, they would have been able to say what they needed to say. So considering these things, is our speech kind and is it truthful and is it timely? That is, can it, can it be heard? We cultivate wise speech. And that's the positive of not lying or not using false or harsh speech. That's a big one. The Buddha suggested actually that was the biggest one <laughs> because he said, if a person will lie, they will do anything and lie about it. So he felt that cultivating honest, truthful, wise speech was the most important of the precepts. And it can be the most challenging in many ways. We've all, we've all said things in ways that were not kind or were not helpful, um, sometimes out of our own frustration, out of our own bewilderment or fear or whatever. And so it's an ongoing practice for all of us to cultivate as wise speech as we possibly can and to listen. <laughs> and the fourth precept then is that of not abusing sexuality. And you can see that's a huge one. The positive being honoring, respecting our sexuality and the sexuality of others. Or sometimes we say body. Honoring our own body and honoring the body of our partner or the other person. So what does this entail? What does that mean to honor, respect our own sexuality as well as that of somebody else? Of course, consent is a big part of it. And fortunately now with the Me Too movement and with so much of um, sexual abuse in the news, consent is, is much more talked about, thought about, taught. Um, <clears throat> I don't have school-aged children, but I hear on NPR that that in sex education classes, consent is a big deal. Um, it wasn't when I was young. <laughs> um, and although I have never been raped or you know, sexually assaulted, there have been times that my consent was <laughs> pretty weak. Um, it was, you know, more of a, uh, 
hate to say, but sort of like a popularity thing or uh, wanting to be accepted and not having the the guts or whatever to say no and that no means no. Um, so as females, of course, having our consent respected, as males, honoring a female's consent or anybody for that matter anybody's consent or lack of consent. So that sexuality is used as an expression of love and not an expression of greed or um, not caring, harming. Again, as with all of them, it's, it's big. It's a huge... Uh, a huge topic, a huge field with many, many considerations. But if we remember that, that the idea, the precept is about not just uh, not abusing sexuality, but honoring, honoring our own sexuality and that of our partner, honoring respecting, um, being compassionate, being loving, so that our sexuality is an expression of caring and, um, and not uh, abusive in any way. And then the last, the fifth precept in our practice is that of not intoxicating the mind. And typically or often it's um, talked about in terms of alcohol or drugs. But again, when we really look at it and when we consider the positive, which is cultivating a clear mind, there are many ways that we can intoxicate the mind. Literature, you know, what we read, pornography, movies, and not just pornography, but violence. Um, violence or uh, promoting unethical behavior. I think Thich Nhat Hanh goes so far as to, as to consider uh, consumerism, what consider what we consume and what we don't consume that uh, affects the mind. Um, I don't go to movies a lot, but I certainly won't go to one where there's a lot of violence especially unnecessary violence. If it's, you know, um, historical or something, if there's a little bit, <laughs> but if there's very much, I can't, I can't tolerate it. And, and I don't like to go because I don't like to support the glorification of violence, which often happens in even historical 
movies. So considering what we take in physically, mentally, what we consume, what we support through, you know, our consumerism, through donations, etc., etc. Um, are we cultivating a clear mind or are we allowing our mind to become intoxicated? So again, are there comments, questions? You probably can think of a lot of examples that I didn't mention that are, I'm sorry? Yeah. What, the juiciest thing that I found you mentioned is um, the whole right speech thing. The whole, that's hard. I find that, that I'm okay if things are calm. Mm-hmm. I'm fine, I'm balanced, but if I feel cornered, mm-hmm. all kinds of things come out of my mouth. You know, I'll do, you know, like emergency triage, control, and I will be, I'm from a rather abrupt culture, so that I can go full jersey on somebody. And, you know, it's like not appropriate. And it's it's as though I have to make sure that that I'm conscious of my environment and whether or not I've put myself in a position where I'm going to be hurried by something else that's going on because I don't respond very well during those circumstances. So I'll think, oh, I should be careful here because you're going to land up, push come to shove, and you're going to be cornered and you're not going to, to act well. And I catch myself that all the time. It's like you're trying to help somebody out, but it really is a corner situation. It's an emergency situation. So it's, 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 I have to work on myself to, to stay better balanced so that I'm able to be responsive to a situation instead of reactive. And it comes out in my mouth. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and that's the way to practice, that you are aware of that possibility, and so you do your best not to allow a situation where that's going to come out. And perhaps one day it won't even want to come out. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lori. <laughs> No, I'm really bad. I'm an, I'm, I'm an introvert, so. Um, one of the things I want, that I thought of when you said about, um, I think it was number two, something freely given, mm-hmm. your examples were about money, but I think about emotion and emotionally, mm-hmm. and that uh, from both perspectives, that when someone is offering some kind of emotional exchange but it's not freely given it puts the receiver in a kind of obligation and if on the other hand someone is you know demanding something or manipulating something 
in, in the form of an emotional exchange. It's also not something that's freely given. So, yes. I, um, you know, the money one is really, really obvious. <laughs> the other is much more nuanced and subtle. Exactly. Um, when I'm, I have a 17-year-old twin girls, and so there's all kinds of obligation and lack of free exchanges um, happening, and I have to be mindful of to what extent do I feel like it's an appropriate parenting request and what is it that I need to give freely without putting them in obligation. It's much more complicated. Yes, yes, very good point. And that's true with generosity, you know, when we're practicing generosity. Um, is it freely? <laughs> is it freely offered? Or is there a, an expectation? Uh, often, I find, I wouldn't say there's an expectation. But then when I don't get a thank you, <laughs> I realize there really was. Yeah. And, and that's a tough one because it's freely offered. But... <laughs> but I, I think if the exchange is, is that that expectation is clear or stated as well, uh-huh. you know, I, I mean, I, I, do ex- I do expect my kids to be polite. <clears throat> I mean, rarely to me these days. But, you know, uh-huh. and I, I don't have a problem if it's, stated explicitly if it's that's that's a very good point too yes yes if we're really upfront about it yeah mm-hmm. then it's not a hidden expectation it's expected um, conduct yeah mm-hmm. one of um, one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because I find one of the most valuable parts of Buddhist teaching is that the end does not justify the means. And, and we talk about ethical or wise conduct every step of the way. And so it's not okay to tell a little white lie um, because the end is worth it. (laughs) And of course, an exception comes to mind, which I think always comes to mind, which is if you're hiding a Jew in your basement, <laughs> are you going to tell the truth? No. <laughs> that's, that's pretty clear. But there are so many times that um, uh, I don't want to get into politics, but particularly in politics, where we think the end justifies something. Maybe it's not totally unethical, but sort of shady, you know, along the way. And I think the Buddhist understanding that it means every action is with integrity. And we do that and we let go of the result because we can't always know 
and it may not go the way we want or expect it to, which may or may not end up being a good thing. But our job is to be sure that we are ethical at every step and then, you know, accept whatever the the result is, whatever the end is. And I like to really emphasize that with people because I think it's so easy for us to to not be so conscious, not be so careful, to um, to slide into you know a little maybe not horrible behavior, but a little unethical behavior in service of the long-term goal. And as I clearly said, of course there are situations where, um, you know, the decision to lie or cover or whatever is, is the most ethical, is the most humane, is the most compassionate. But those situations, by and large, are rare. Um, it's more frequently expediency or something, getting what we want, and so we fudge it a little bit so we can get what we want. And I think the practice of making sure that every step that we take is ethical is so valuable and so important. And when we do that, when we make a conscious effort to do that, then then when there comes a time that is so significant that clearly um, we break a, a precept, it's done with such consciousness and such caring. Um, it really is the wisest action. It's said in our practice that at a certain point, there comes a certain point in our practice where we can't break a precept. That means they are so much a part of us and we are so um, committed to the path and to following the precepts that we just wouldn't. We just wouldn't. I find that comforting <laughs> to know that if we practice sincerely and long enough that um, The precepts are just a part of us, and we wouldn't we wouldn't want to break them. And that brings to mind the understanding that that following the precepts is considered a protection. It's a protection for us and a protection for others. So when we go on retreat, we always take the precepts the first night, and that way we know that. All of us in this retreat situation are operating under the same um, guidelines, the same understandings. And we can trust that our fellow retreatants will follow those as well as ourselves. And it protects us because if we live a life of blamelessness, sometimes referred to as the bliss of blamelessness, 
That means that, that uh, we don't do anything that, uh, that we can be blamed for. Then our life is going to be easier and happier and more fun as well. So following the precepts protects us all. Protects us from ourselves, protects us from others, protects others from us. And I find that very supportive, very helpful. Yeah. Does that make you exempt from karma? Not as long as one is not enlightened. <laughs> when one is enlightened, yes, there's no more karma. <laughs> I guess the question was, does that make you exempt from karma, or the yeah. taking the precepts as well as the discipline of morality, so to speak? Yeah, the teachings are, as long as we are not enlightened, we are subject to the laws of karma. Causes and conditions. Yes, right. Every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction, or Newton's third law. Yeah, yeah. But again, karma, you know, is very complex. And um, we, if we do something unethical, we may, we may still be subject to the law of karma, but if we have changed our behavior in the meantime, if we have maybe made restitution, um, <clears throat> made amends wherever we could, then the karma can be mitigated. So it may be much less than it would be without. So can a lay practitioner just clean toilets and <laughs> the temple and things like that to avoid karma? If that would, could that be his way towards enlightenment? <laughs> Sorry, just a practical question. Well, you know, I'm I'm sure in some temples that's that's considered, yes. <laughs> but realistically, the men should, the amends should match the right. crime, the breaking of the precept. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? You know, in morality, a lot of times, like here, I, I remember this one quote from Donald Rumsfeld. I know this is politics, but the quote was, um, we can't rely on morals. That's why we have laws to tell people, yeah, you got to turn off the light after five, uh, shut off the water, because you couldn't rely on people just say, I'm going to do the right thing, yeah. and because I don't want to waste water. Um, that's sort of like the way it works out there, even, you know, so I'm just kind of, how does that run or relate to everyday practitioners with things such as, well, you know what, I'm just going to do the right thing because that's better than, you know, the president telling me what to do or the police officer saying I should just, you know, not park in handicap zones. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if this makes sense. I don't know if it's a question or it's just an well, observation. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's the way our society operates, and that's often um, why laws are passed because... Unfortunately, right that's right. Many people <laughs> will not. <laughs> They're not all going to just drive 65 or 
You just got to tell them or get a ticket. Or, yeah. And that make yeah. you their karma. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As practitioners, we can do it because we want to do what is most skillful and what is most ethical. But in society as large, at least at this point, there's still going to be rules, rules and laws. Right, yeah. yeah. Anything else? <coughs> well, I hope this will make you think. <laughs> that's, that's the point. And come up with your own uh, considerations, you know, as you go about your daily life and, and you think about not taking life, honoring life, not taking what is not freely offered, cultivating generosity, um, developing wise speech, and honoring sexuality, not intoxicating the mind, but, but cultivating a clear mind. You know, see what comes up, and see what your consideration, your thought process is. Um, the most important tool is our mindfulness. And, and I was going to say, you know, with mindfulness becoming a household word, there's been some concern in the Buddhist community that mindfulness without the ethical context of our practice um, may not be so helpful. <laughs> because we can be mindful. I, I always use the analogy of the plastic bag, but we can be mindful of using a plastic bag. But if we don't understand the problem of using a plastic bag, then we can be mindful all we want, and it's not going to change our behavior. But if we know the perils of plastic and of using plastic, then the mindfulness. I heard Thich Nhat Hanh one time, many, many, probably 30 years ago at Stanford say, Every time you use a plastic bag, know that you are using a plastic bag. And one day you won't use plastic bags. But that's only if you understand <laughs> the problem with using plastic bags. So, you know, perhaps there's a point that the ethical context of mindfulness is very important. I don't think mindfulness can ever be harmful, but... Um, maybe not as helpful as it could be. So thank you all. I wish you a happy new year and happy what? mindfulness. <laughs>